I'll do interstitial. Oh, okay. I was like, do you want me to sing it? I was like, Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Discovery Debrief, a Star Trek podcast. We are now into episode 9, and uh, today we're doing things a little bit differently, uh, because obviously we are in the early days of the lull after the mid-season finale, so there's not a significant amount of stuff that we can talk about in relations to uh, new material for the actual show itself, but we've talked over the last couple of weeks over the idea of maybe diving into this first uh, new novel that has come out, the first step in the expanded universe of Star Trek in the realm of Discovery. So to that end, that means that our regular panel is a little truncated for this episode. It's only me, co-host Chris Clow, and I am joined by Rachel Clow. Rachel? Hi, Chris. Hi, Rachel. Nice to see you again. (laughs) 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 I mean... Well, we see each other every day, so but but still, obviously, it's just you and me because we're the only ones that read this book yes. on, on our panel. So uh, it makes sense. It's just me and you that's talking about it, right? Yep. Yep. Well, uh, we listened to it. We didn't read. Well, it. yeah. I mean, that's true because audiobooks are really convenient when you're going to work or you're doing another task. So, so that's how we decided to absorb it. But uh, so we'll be taking a more in-depth look at. Star Trek Discovery, Desperate Hours, which was a novel written by author David Mack. But before we actually dive into the book, um, and it's only us, but you have been watching new episodes of Deep Space, well, old episodes of Deep Space. You've been continuing your Deep Space Nine rewatch. Yes. I wish I was watching new episodes of Deep Space Nine. Oh, yeah, you and me both. But... uh, (laughs) But so, how many episodes have you actually absorbed since the last time we recorded? I don't recorded? know, like five or six. You've I watched think. a lot, yeah, um, including one of my favorite episodes of the whole series, which is the one where Cork and Nog and Rom go back in time and to cause the Roswell incident. L- little green men. Yeah, yeah, that is a great one. Yeah, I love that one. I I love Quark's crack about uh when he discovers what cigarettes are in the 20th century and like if they'll buy poison they'll buy anything yeah <laughs> and he's got this whole capitalistic scheme hatch to to have dominance over the 20th century earth which is a pretty pretty funny but yes very good episode so upwards of like six episodes then probably yes yeah well, that's a lot of deep space nine and which season are you in Fourth season. Fourth season yeah. still. Okay. Well, they're good episodes, Chris. It's true. It's true. I'm I'm not I'm not bashing Deep Space Nine. I would never do such a thing. But uh, but you're enjoying it still. Are you picking anything up on a rewatch that you maybe didn't pick up the first time you watched this show? Well, I'm finding a lot more um, parallels to political situation, especially with the episodes where they're all freaked out because there's. Um, changelings on earth Mm -hmm. and uh i i mean to to me watching it in 2017 it was like oh yeah you know we can't give up all our freedoms because we're afraid of terrorists Mm -hmm. i 
I don't know if that was the intention in like 1997 or right whenever I but maybe it was maybe I was just a child and weirdly reactionary even though 9/11 hadn't happened yet. Yeah, yeah, I just I found it really prescient. Mm-hmm. Pre- prescient? Prescient? How do you how do you pronounce it? Uh, pre- I've only ever read that word. Prophetic. How about <laughs> Okay. But prescient I think is yeah, I think I think that's a good word for it. Well, uh well, as for me, I haven't really been doing – the absence of discovery has kind of gotten me depressed, honestly. Uh, no new yeah. Star Trek. I mean, I got so used to the idea that there's new Star Trek for us to absorb, and it's something that I haven't now been able – Now we're spoiled. Exactly. Like, I haven't been able to look forward to that on television for upwards of 12 years, and now that it's gone, I don't want it to leave again. You know, I knew what those 12 years are like, and I got used to things over the last couple of months, and it's, I, I, I can't go back. I can't go back <laughs> now. Don't go, make I me. I go back. I don't want to. But, uh, so, as far as absorption of other Star Trek stuff, it, it's been kind of at a minimum, especially with other things that have been ramping up over the last couple of weeks in, in regards to popular culture and other media. But, uh, Star Trek is always in my heart. So, even if... Even if I might take a little bit of a backseat, it's it's never taken. A I'm backseat. sure you've absorbed some of my deep space nine. Well, yeah, I mean, that, uh, and to a degree, uh, I'm I always pay attention whenever we have Star Trek on our TV, but um, but I haven't gone out of my way to do anything else beyond that. So other than this, okay. So why don't we actually dive into our discussion, which is on the novel Star Trek Discovery: Desperate Hours. So for those of you who uh, probably haven't read the book, I mean, we're going to get into some of the details as far as character interactions and some of the loose details of the plot, but we're not going to get into things too specifically. Uh, but hopefully this will still be an entertaining discussion, especially considering what this book is going for and what it potentially means for the characters. And obviously, and I mentioned this before, but Star Trek and Star Wars work fundamentally differently when it comes to approaching expanded universe material because in Star Wars, especially nowadays, everything is in continuity. That's not the case in Star Trek. In Star Trek, everything that is licensed, so anything that is not on the screen, is not technically canon, but when you have a good writer, uh, of which I think David Mack most definitely is, they still try to observe the rules of canon. So if it was going to fit in, then it feels like it can. But so just full disclosure right up front, this book is not in continuity, but, uh, but it kind of feels like it in some respects. So here's the book jacket description uh, before we actually dive into some of the specifics. So this takes place uh, one year before the Vulcan Hello, before the very first episode of the show. And it says, Aboard the starship Shenzhou, Lieutenant Michael Burnham, a human woman raised and educated among Vulcans, is promoted to acting first officer. But if she wants to keep the job, she must prove to Captain Philippa Giorgio that she deserves to have it. She gets her chance when the Shenzhou must protect a Federation colony that is under attack by an ancient alien vessel that has surfaced from the deepest fathoms of the planet's dark, uncharted sea. As the menace from this mysterious vessel grows stronger, Starfleet declares the colony expendable in the name of halting the threat. To save thousands of innocent lives, Burnham must infiltrate the alien ship, 
but to do so she needs to face the truth of her troubled past and seek the aid of a man she has tried to avoid her entire life until now. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> so, this is the first time that we get to absorb the show's characters outside of the context of the show itself. So, Rachel, why don't we start this off? Let me ask you, did you find the way the show's characters were positioned in this story to be educational? Yes. Am I allowed to say who the man she has tried to avoid her entire life Oh, yeah. Life you, no, is? we're we're going there. Oh, okay. yeah, we're, yeah, we're definitely going there. Because it's Spock. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, I guess I found that the Spock-Michael interaction was the most educational. Mm-hmm. I also, if we're looking at a broad overview here, mm-hmm. I liked... Getting to know Captain Pike and his number one, yeah, Una, mm-hmm. who I didn't even know her name. Well, she didn't have a name in the show. Like, in canon specifically, she doesn't have a name outside of number one. Oh. So that's the name that they gave her. And I think they gave her that name in previous books as well. But, I mean, they had to give her They couldn't just call her. Especially <laughs> since Michael herself is called number one by Captain Georgia. Right, right. But, uh, but yeah. Anyway, yeah, um, I like that she was given more character and backstory. That was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, kind of an underutilized character overall in Star Trek lore. Well, she, I haven't read many other books, so this might be like in the books. So this is just well, her tr- character. True, for all I know true. But, but yeah. I mean, since Majel Barrett went on to play Nurse Chapel in the original series after it was picked up and then when she of course went on to play Deanna Troy's mother her position and what she was doing was kind of more devoted to those characters as opposed to seeing more from number one so we don't really have a lot of canonical perspective on number one so this book yeah I totally agree Mm -hmm. we got to see some some cool stuff so what do you think you learned the most about Michael specifically when you read this book? Because as you know, we talked before when the show was first starting, obviously Michael's a new character and obviously she's the main character, but we still are in the getting to know you, you know, you know we're, we're in that phase. <laughs> we're, we're in the getting to know you phase uh-huh. of, of things overall. So when you read this book, like by the time you finished it, do you feel like you had a better understanding of who Michael Burnham is? Yeah, and I think the author did like such a good job fitting in her characterization in the novel with what was revealed in Discovery to the point where it's all kind of mixed up in my mind mm-hmm. and I'm not a, I sometimes I have trouble unweaving like wait did I learn that in the show or did I learn that piece of information from the book like mm-hmm. this sort of thing um so there's there's some like flashbacks in in the book that are really illuminating about Michael's early life and kind of really make sense in terms of why she is the way she is in the show so i mm-hmm. yeah i was really impressed yeah and i got that impression too especially considering you know I, I i definitely you know i finished this after you did it was a slower burn with me but i'm kind of glad that it was because well m- more specifically the episode of the show that we watched that directly dealt with her history with Sarek. Mm-hmm. i'm glad that I had seen that episode before I finished the book 
because if I had not, it might have kind of spoiled some aspect of that episode, even though it doesn't directly deal with like plot stuff. But the depth to which the book went to complemented what we learned in that episode, I thought. Really yeah, well. it really did. Yeah. yeah. What about Saru? What did you learn about him in the book that you may that we maybe still haven't learned in the show? Well, I mentioned it in the main show. Mm-hmm. He's way less annoying in the book because, <laughs> like, they have a lot of his inner inner monologue, right? And his inner monologue is very interesting because he's sort of like aware that, like, he's like, "Oh, I don't fit in because mm-hmm. I'm all nervous all the time," and um, I. I appreciated that, so I appreciated Saru, and I think I've appreciated him more on the show than other people because I'm, I have like this idea of maybe who he is in, inside that mm-hmm. I'm sort of projecting onto the character that I see on the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just I think Saru is an interesting character from the inside. I, I guess I relate to him because I'm also very nervous. <laughs> well, it might have made the moment too when when the Pavians got rid of his chronic fear. It might have made that a little punchier with our understanding of having read the book because, you know, we know that the, the fear pervades every aspect of his thinking. So seeing that taken away from him, someone who reads the book might understand a little bit more how fundamental a shift that is for a character like Saru. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I just I I obviously fi- I finished the book long before that episode, so mm-hmm. I have no frame of reference for how it seemed if you hadn't read the book. Mm-hmm. But right, yeah. yeah, of course. Well, uh, another character that was prominently featured was Captain Giorgio, and uh, did you get any impressions about her that you may not have gotten from the show itself? I don't think it added like an insane amount of stuff about Captain Giorgio, but it very much complements what you learn from the show and kind of delves into maybe why she's, you know, one of the most decorated captains. Mm -hmm. Although maybe she's the most decorated like posthumously. I don't know. Well, it's in that episode (laughs) where Saru tried to like Wikipedia, you know, how to do his job. Right. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Or Google how to do his or however it was. Uh, she was listed among the most decorated captains, and he asked specifically living or dead. So, because she was in the list. Yeah, I'm just, I'm wondering if she was decorated before she died, or if she, like, got so many awards for the manner of her death that that she became one of the most. But in any case, in Mm -hmm. any case, it's not important. That's just a weird semantic thing that I've thought of. Sure. Um, uh, In any case, um, you see why she's such a good captain because she, if you can see a lot more of like her normal every day to day leadership skills and mm-hmm. um, again her inner monologue, which is really makes a lot of sense, and she's kind of like a a proxy for what we think is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's true. I think she was one of the characters that I attached to more in reading the book because. Well, in those first two episodes of the show, you do get a very clear idea of the kind of commander she is, and you also get a decent idea at her humanity, and that's what I feel was accentuated in the book. Like, you you hear these conversations that she has with Michael that are a little quieter, and, uh, you know, she's still not, it's, in a way, she's still kind of feeling Michael out as far as what role she's going to be able to play on the Shenzhou. Mm-hmm. But she also has this intuition that seems to tell her that 
this is an officer that I need to groom for greater things. And I got more of an impression of that in the book in addition to seeing the fact that she is an extraordinarily capable commander. And I really liked that aspect of it. I was hoping that she would have a more prominent presence in the show than we got. Obviously her shadow looms large over the entire show, but actually having another adventure to absorb where she is a character of consequence and someone who's kind of steering the ship to uh, to figure out what's going on and to see how she deals with her personnel and even with other captains, which we'll get to in a minute, was something that I really thought was cool for her perspective. So definitely something to behold. So the opening of the book positions the characters for us pretty quickly, and we actually get to see Burnham ascend to, at first, acting first officer. And the show's done a lot over the course of the season's first chapter to emphasize Burnham's relationship with Captain Giorgio, and the book provides a closer look at that. Did you think the book gave more context to the feelings Michael held later about her failure for the captain of the Shenzhou? Did it hit you a little bit harder let's say, in the the mid-season finale, when she's trying to do right by the memory of Captain Giorgio against Call because of what you learned in the book? Uh, I would have to... I'm not sure about that. Mm. I think that, like, she's already been on the Shenzo. Six years or something? Yeah, so I feel like their relationship is kind of... Their relationship's, like, at the same place in the book as it is in the first, at the beginning of Discovery. Sure. It's yeah. just Michael hasn't ascended to first officer. But they're mm-hmm. already, like, good friends. Right. And, and have that, like, really established mentor-mentee kind of relationship mm-hmm. going. So. What about the rivalry between Michael and Saru? I found that pretty illuminating. Um... I think it, it's not as clear in the show what uh, like are they rivals are they That's friends true, yeah. like you you don't you don't quite get that and in the in this book they make it pretty clear that they're rivals mm-hmm. which like I think I like I watched the first two episodes I then listened to part of the book where they're rivals I was like oh I guess they don't like each other and then we watched more of the episodes where Saru's you know, talking to Michael and he's saying, like, you're dangerous. <laughs> so, yeah. like, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, like, mm-hmm. that really fits in with what was in the book. So Yeah, I got that impression, too. I mean, the show does just enough to sort of hint at the history between Michael and Saru, but actually seeing them in open competition where, you know, Saru makes... I think that he does more to offer the idea of a conflict between them than Michael does. Like, Saru always feels like he's on the defensive, that he has something to prove. And I think he's insecure about yeah. his abilities because mm-hmm. he's a prey species, right. in case yeah. you didn't know. <laughs> yeah, he's always he's, he always makes that pretty clear when <laughs> when you, you let him talk a little bit longer. But... Uh, well, that's another thing, too. I mean, obviously, we'll talk a little bit more about Saru, but uh, so the show itself, and we've talked about this before with Cicero and Zaki, uh, is never, is likely never to feature actual characters from the original series. But 
Of course, one of the actual selling points for the book is the fact that Michael has to team up with Spock in order to get to the bottom of what's happening with the ancient alien juggernaut. I think that's it's called the juggernaut. Uh, but this is a very consequential meeting in both the context of the show and the wider Star Trek universe. So how do you think that specific dynamic was handled in the story? Obviously, on one hand, we have a character that we all know abundantly well, who's one of the pillars of the Star Trek universe, if not the pillar of the Star Trek universe. And on the other hand, we have the newest lead character for a spin-off series for all intents and purposes and they have this intrinsic connection we still have never seen them and we likely never will see them on the show interact so when that interaction began to take shape in the book how did that make you feel what did you feel about that i felt good about it i felt like the characterization of spock was like great like it raised no bells for uh, alarm Mm-hmm. For me, of being like, this is weird, or this isn't the Spock that I know. Or Your anything. BS detector didn't go off. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good word for it. <laughs> I really like their interaction. I it, I think it explains some things to me because I kind of wondered, like, what is their relationship like? Are are they friends? And mm-hmm. um, I think that it delves into what their relationship really is about. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of scratches that itch for me where I feel like the show doesn't have to address it because, like, I understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know a lot about Spock. Yeah. You, yeah, you yeah. could, inf- If you have a decent character understanding of Spock, even without having read this, you can likely infer how that interaction plays out. But actually seeing it, or in this case reading it, or in our case listening to it... Uh, <laughs> I I thought I definitely thought it was rewarding. I mean, as someone I've talked about at nauseum before, I mean, the original series is my favorite aspect of this franchise. So seeing Spock again and in a characterization that definitely seems widely informed by all aspects of his life that we know about. So the book, I mean, the book even makes reference to yesteryear, that episode of the animated series where we actually see an aspect of his childhood. But it also seems to ring true with uh, even some aspects of the way Spock explains his own connection to humanity in something like unification, his appearances in The Next Generation. You know, he, he's always fighting that turmoil uh, between his warring human and Vulcan halves, something that obviously by the 24th century he has uh, come to terms with and made peace with. But he's still a very young man in this. So that those aspects of his personality are still very much in conflict. And, uh, and it just seemed to, to catch all of that. So actually seeing what Spock's childhood is like and how that links up with what we are now learning about Michael's story is fascinating. And it's definitely something that I hope is continued in the show. Pro- Even if we never see Spock, I hope that this is an aspect of Michael's character and her own personality and her own history that is given a more robust treatment in future episodes, if that makes sense. But um, but, but they can't show Spock. But they can't show Spock, of course not. Maybe they could have his voice come from... Maybe. Zachary Quinto sound alike. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Or something like that. I mean, 
practically speaking, it's if if they were gonna have Spock on, the, obviously they recast Sarek. They could do that creepy face CG. Oh, and actually, and like, like bring like, Leonard Nimoy back. Just make Leonard Nimoy be there. Uh, I don't know how I feel about that. Just, I hate that idea. <laughs> just, <laughs> I'm sorry, I thought of it. <laughs> just hire, just hire Quinto. He'll come back. He he would. Uh, well, another another character though that I wasn't expecting, as far as interactions between Discovery characters and original series characters, that I thought was cool was Saru and Commander Una, or number one. Yeah. Like, Saru found a kindred spirit. It's it was, it's funny because in his own internal monologue, he's kind of making reference to the fact that, well, I would never fall in love with a human. But <laughs> if I would, this would be the one. He also says he, it's like, I'd marry her if she were a Kalpian. Right, exactly, yeah. She, it's like... He, if if you're a human, that's a non-starter. Sorry, ladies that might be interested in Saru, but those threat ganglia. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but what did you think of how that, especially as someone who's not who was admittedly not very familiar with Number One, seeing how they interacted with each other, did that give you a sense of uh, happiness for Saru, or did it make you feel something else? Yeah, happy for Saru. I think that that helped me get to know Saru better. Um, especially like prior to the episode with the Pavians, you don't really see him like in a situation where he's like doing stuff well or mm. like <laughs> right. Like I I don't know. Um, so it was. It was nice to get to know him in the outside of the context of him just being like, I sense death coming. Ah! <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah. Um, sure. Outside of a crisis, I guess. That's that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. yeah. A, a sense of um, understanding and, I guess, camaraderie or maybe kindred, a, a kindred feeling of, yeah. or a kindred intellect, maybe, is what Commander Una seemed to be. Yeah, I thought that was cool. Well, um... When it comes to Spock and what his presence brings to the table in regards to learning more about Michael, it seems that they both have very complicated feelings that they need to process about Sarek. Did the discussions between Michael and Spock directly give you any more of an indication about where Sarek stands in both of their, I guess, views on things? I'm confusing all of my knowledge from the book and the but, show. Well, no, like, that's okay, no though. Idea like, do you, if but, what the book added to, I don't know. I, I guess my overall impression is, Sarek, buddy, read some parenting books. <laughs> there are so many books about parenting. It, it's just, yeah. it's like you messed it up in all sorts of unique ways. I don't know. Yeah, you, you know, especially in the show, I was kind of getting the impression that Michael might be maybe Sarek's second chance at being a father? Because obviously there are some pretty big failings that he endured with Spock specifically. I mean, Spock always seemed to characterize the relationship with his father as a difficult one. You know, like they never ever really got along. They had moments of understanding between each other, but it always seemed like it was always the peace that would linger before they would again declare war on each other. Like, first time we meet Sarek, 
Uh, he's, he and Spock aren't speaking and haven't spoken as father and son, at least, in nearly 20 years. And obviously that led to a moment of understanding between each other. And Sarek took a, an active role, especially after Spock died in trying to, to get his son back. But then by the time we get to the 24th century and unification, some disagreement about an ambassadorial issue led them to not speak to each other again, and Spock left the Federation as a result. It's just, like, Michael seems like she has more of a capability of sticking around, I guess? Actually valuing Sarek more as a father? But maybe she doesn't feel as affronted as Spock does, for some reason. I don't know, maybe because she's not a Vulcan? She's leaning more towards actual love. I don't know. I this is just sort of me headcanoning it, but yeah. um, maybe like it's if somebody has like really upset you, and then you you might say like, uh, well, it's logical that I don't interact with that person anymore. Or it's mm -hmm. not logical for us to have a relationship, but in in human society, you're like, well, nah, you know, I love my dad. Yeah. <laughs> so, so. I, or my dad figure. Mm -hmm. Um so, you know, even yeah. if he's was a jerk to me or lied to me or whatever. A very Vulcan attitude. If something is causing a problem, then just excise it from your life. Yeah, yeah. And so you can't really do that, or at least most humans can't really do that feasibly without having severe psychological scars maybe. Well, I just feel like it's it, you can forgive a lot of stuff because you love a person. Yeah. So. And well, and that's the thing and that's too. That's good. Because Michael is pretty clear about the fact that she does love Sarek, especially in what we've seen in the show. And Sarek and Spock, it's like they independently confirm at separate points that they love each other, but they can't seem to do it to each other. You know. Right. Yeah. And and. That's something that would unfortunately seem to persist until both of them die. So. Oh. <laughs> you made me sad, oh, Chris. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But I mean, that's, that's the thing. Like, the show has. The, by positioning a prequel that features the family of Sarek very prominently, we have an entirely new perspective, or potentially new perspective, on what Sarek's attitudes are. And that, to me, is fascinating. But. So before I actually get to the next question, let me ask you something separate about The Cage. Because you and I have watched The Cage together a couple of times. How do you see that episode in the wider pantheon of Star Trek? My thoughts on it were I never I never quite took it seriously, I guess. What about the content of the episode? Well, I think it's a it's a solid episode. Mm -hmm. Um I don't know why it wasn't good enough or what what the issue the network had with it. Because I can it tell seems you. Because representative of the show as a whole and what it was going to be. At least but. from my understanding is two things. The first complaint that NBC apparently had about it was that it was far too cerebral okay. for network television. And the second one, remember it's 1964, they couldn't stomach the idea of a woman second in command. Okay. <laughs> so, those are the two things. But, I mean, obviously, 
things worked out for Star Trek overall. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. uh but yeah, apparently it was those two factors. There were there were some other things too, but those were the two primary factors that led to the show not getting picked up just from that pilot. Why did they let them make a second pilot? Uh I I guess they were interested enough in the concept that they thought it was worth another try. Uh, But, I mean, it is very unusual, especially by the standards of today. I mean, you normally just get one shot at it. Yeah. I think that Star Trek is actually relatively unique in television history in getting picked up off of the production of a mandated second pilot by a network. Hmm. But uh, they couldn't get Jeffrey Hunter for the second pilot, which is why they cast William Shatner. Yeah, I I like William Shatner better than than Jeffrey Hunter. Yeah. Well, that was... So... So th- that's so that's where you stand on the cage, basically. Like you respect it, you you generally like it. Yeah, I like it, but I think that the success of the rest of the show speaks for itself, right? Right. Like, yeah. They, I think that I like William Shatner better, and I like Shatner and Nimoy's interactions mm-hmm. are wonderful. Yeah. And I'm not sure you would have got that. Sure. So. Well, so. Apparently, back to getting back to the book now, apparently it was Discovery co-creator Brian Fuller who asked that the first tie-in novel feature a crossover between the crews of the Shenzhou and the Enterprise as commanded by Captain Christopher Pike. So, now that we've kind of established where you stand on the cage, what did this book give you in regards to positioning Captain Pike and his first officer? Like, did you learn anything about their characterizations from this book that you maybe didn't get out of the cage. I guess I didn't like Captain Pike. Oh, really? You just outright didn't like him? <laughs> yeah, I kind of like found, too, found you... him annoying. Or I, yeah, I guess it was just he was so he. I, I don't want to spoil anything, which is sort of right, why, yeah, I'm, yeah, why yeah. I'm hesitating. But he, he just he comes off as being a very like by the book kind of guy and. Um, no imagination. Yeah, yeah. So he'll follow an order. Yeah. W- without really questioning T- too much to that um mm-hmm. to that side of the spectrum and yeah, so I just I found I I found him it's kind of like shut up Captain Pike. Um <laughs> I liked number 1 slash Una a lot. Um mostly cuz I you know I had no context for what who her character actually was, and I really liked her interactions with Saru. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. What about uh, her interaction? And this is jumping ahead a little bit because it's at the end of the book, but she had a pretty telling interaction with Spock near the end of the book that I I found, I was charmed by it. I mean, it it was almost like Una was actually trying to be maybe the only person aboard the Enterprise to reach out to Spock when he's clearly troubled by what has just transpired but she i got kind of a troy-like vibe off of her like, yeah yeah that's actually a good point is she's very empathetic yeah yeah she she's actually trying to i guess be inclusive as a yeah. first officer which i thought was was kind of cool but uh so did that really did you dislike pike uh after watching the cage or is that something that you got pretty much from the book from the book i mean honestly i i don't really know even from the cage i don't have like a strong characterization of captain pike i mean he's just sort of like a handsome dude 
Okay, how about some pedantic continuity stuff? Woo! Yeah, we all love pedantic continuity stuff, right? Hosted by Chris Clow. The Clow continuity cat. <laughs> uh, so, so, so before we actually get into it, some context. Uh, he, when David Mack was asked about uh, what, what it would be like to rationalize the massive differences between uh, what we see of the aesthetic in Star Trek Discovery and the established continuity differences in uh, the original series, in Cage specifically, he said that the book, quote, addressed the difference in the ship's aesthetics to a human tendency to want to redesign even the simplest things every few years. Uh, he also explained the differences in technology by saying, quote, I posited that the use of subspace holograms had fallen out of favor by the time the Enterprise was built because the holograms were bandwidth hogs on subspace channels and prone to encryption flaws. And while the interfaces on the Shenzhou's bridge look fancier, the characters who serve on the Enterprise feel proud that their ship is so advanced that it doesn't need all these gadgets to get the job done. And regarding the uniforms, which is something that Cicero always brings up when we make these comparisons, he said, quote, The crews of the Enterprise and other Constitution-class ships are considered elite units, so they've been issued special diplomatic uniforms to designate their status. Okay. So, obviously, there's quite a bit of contrivance What's there. What's the point of a uniform if they're different? <laughs> they're, they're not uniform? Yeah, uniform. A duoform? I do not buy the uniforms. I do buy the not using the holograms because, look... I could FaceTime, well, I guess I, I don't have an iPhone, so I can't FaceTime anybody, but I could Skype people Yeah. if I wanted to all the time. I don't Skype anybody because, like, I don't I don't want to have to, like, make sure I look good every time I talk to somebody on the phone. Mm -hmm. Like, no, nobody, nobody wants... Well, it's also easier, faster, and maybe even more efficient to just send someone a text, usually, you know? Well, yeah, but if you, you know, you need to have a conversation, a phone conversation is usually fine. Right, right? it will suffice. <laughs> yeah, right. it's even preferable. Like I said, I don't want to have to, like, do my makeup every time I want to talk on the phone. So. Neither do I. Yeah. Yeah, and you know how much makeup I put on every day. A lot. A it's, lot. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Like my weight and makeup. Uh, so the rationale then given in the book between the striking design differences of the Shenzhou and the Cage era Enterprise, you didn't really buy it? No. <laughs> <laughs> like, it, if it's fine, that's, that's fine. But, yeah. like, so if, no. The thing is, you wanted it to look like 2017. You mm -hmm. made it look like 2017. It's fine. I'm cool with it rationalize it however you want but so if we yeah. see if if on discovery we do end up seeing as we kind of speculated a couple of episodes ago if we do end up seeing a constitution class ship at some point is would this explanation not fly or do you think it's going to fall within the capabilities and the aesthetic that the show's already established i mean costume designers are good at their jobs right i'm sure they can like make those like costumes look you know close enough yeah like halfway between or, or something like that mm -hmm. um they don't have to if they don't want to right i don't care the only thing <laughs> well the only thing on the show itself that kind of gives service to what mac said about the enterprise being like the pinnacle like elite units yeah i mean we saw that conversation between burnham and tilly 
where they both were talking about if you want to go somewhere, get on a Constitution class ship. Yeah. Right? Like, that's somewhere that clearly most of the fleet wants to try and get to. But, yeah, as far as the mechanics of how the design differences would work, I... I, also, it it works it, in prose. It doesn't. I don't think it would work on the show. Wasn't like Brett Anderson on a Constitution class ship in the pilot? I don't think so. He, oh, I don't. I, yeah, I mean, I don't know what class his ship was. If it was I, a big ship, it was a big ship. But I'm reasonably sure that it wasn't. If it were, I'd have freaked out probably. So because I didn't freak out, I'm reasonably sure that it wasn't. Like that's how confident I am in my in my freak out fandom that I'm reasonably sure. Hope you're not wrong. I'm reasonably sure I'm not wrong. <laughs> we'll consult memory alpha when we're done. But, uh, well, Captain Giorgio, uh, the other relationship as far as, you know, established discovery characters and original series characters, that was probably the one that I probably attached to the most was the, sort of conflict i guess between captains giorgio and pike i was really intrigued by that because she is very clearly positioned as the more seasoned and perhaps even more decorated and revered command officer when she when compared directly with captain pike so how did you feel about the way that they interacted with each other and how they worked together because it seems like they had pretty different command philosophies as we alluded to before mm -hmm. yeah I I liked it. I think those interactions sort of made my they they settled my feelings about like Giorgio is like who I would want to be if I was a commander, mm -hmm. and Captain Pike is kind of a, a military. You think he's too bullish? Maybe. Yeah, it's just yeah he he just feels very like military to me. Mm -hmm. I don't know. And she feels more explorer yeah she, i mean she feels more like a leader and he's like a commander well right? and this might uh, dance around a spoiler a little bit here but there's one very clear scenario in the book where uh and you know it's alluded to in the jacket uh synopsis that i read at the top of the show but you know there's a, a moral choice that needs yeah. to be made in regards to the colony that's put at risk. And, and it's and it's an existential one. You know, like Starfleet Command makes pretty clear that this alien juggernaut needs to be destroyed, colony be damned. And Pike is the one who's willing to sacrifice the colony. He doesn't like it, but he's willing to do it. And Giorgio isn't willing to do it at all. And that's part of where the, the conflict comes from. So... You didn't find necessarily Captain Pike's rationale for following orders to be satisfactory. Yeah, no, I, well, no, I, I, f I felt like Giorgio was, she was willing to do it if she had to do it, but she was more like, that is the last thing that we will have to do. Mm -hmm. And she was more like willing to seek out all the, all the options and weigh, you know, weigh the this as a choice that has to be made. Whereas, Whereas Pike I, wanted to destroy things almost from the outset. Yeah, no, I feel like he he was just like, I have my orders, I'm going to do my orders. And he wasn't as interested in, like, we're going to sit down and think about what we're doing. 
That's one thing that I think I maybe didn't like about the book is that it seemed like it almost came to active uh, combat between the Shenzhou and the Enterprise more than I think it would have. You know, like they're conceivably, and the book even makes reference to the fact that in a situation where you have two officers of equal rank, where you have two captains, Giorgio is the senior captain. Like yeah. she's the one whose orders need to be followed in the chain of command in that scenario. But Pike was so singularly focused that I was a little put off by wait a second, you guys are really willing to lock your weapons on each other and, and escalate this to an armed conflict? He was mansplaining Starfleet to her. Well, but that, I don't know if that's the real... No, but that was that... good use of you, that term. No, you're right, though. He, <laughs> it seemed, I mean, maybe that's not where it was coming from for him, but that's kind of what he was doing, and it was Giorgio that kind of slapped him back down. Yeah. And... I I don't know. I just I thought that the conflict escalated between two fleet two members of the same fleet a little too quickly. I mean, look, I know that there's supposed to be like an enlightened future, but to me, I you know, I totally buy that if you're a woman who is good at your job, mm-hmm. that a less experienced, less capable man is going to like not take you seriously right that's a thing that happens all the time Mm -hmm. so (laughs) so yeah it struck you as Uh, maybe that's why i didn't like captain pike maybe i'm projecting all of my anger at like gender inequality (laughs) on captain pike i'm sorry captain pike well i i mean he makes clear though that he does revere her but that's not gonna stop him from destroying an entire colony of people. But, you know, one of my absolute favorite moments in the book, uh, you know, they they get into conflict with the regional government of the colony. And, uh, you know, there's there's some things that I don't want to get into specifically in regards to how the regional government on the colony works because that's the source of a pretty interesting conflict in the book and you should definitely read it for it. But... uh, once there's something that presents an opportunity for them to get on the same page, they do pretty quickly. And Captain Pike is more than willing to let Captain Giorgio have the floor and explain to the colony exactly what's happening and why it's happening. And I liked that. Yeah. But what, okay, how about this? What did you actively dislike about this book? Uh. What did you dislike? Give me some time to think about it. I guess that it seemed like there were some elements of uh, solving the problem that were prolonged more than they needed to be. You know, yeah, I would th- agree with that. Th- it took everybody quite a while to actually figure out how a problem is going to be solved. And, I mean, it's understandable, but there were some parts of that element of the experience that I found to be just prolonged. Right. Okay. Um, I think sometimes I didn't quite understand where the people on the planet were coming from with their antagonism towards Starfleet. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that was just... Me being like, Starfleet is good. <laughs> Come on now. Like we know that it's uh that it's 
an organization that's going to try and help the people within its purview. Yeah, yeah. Um, and other than that, I there was I liked this book. Yeah, yeah. I mm-hmm. was I had a um had a good time listening to it. Would recommend. Yeah, I would recommend. If you had to give it a grade, what would you give it? Like, if you were rating this on good, maybe you did rate it on Goodreads. I did rate it on Goodreads. I think I gave it four stars. Out of five? Yes. Okay. Uh, which is, I mean, there's, you know, I don't know what it could have done to get to that five stars, but for me on Goodreads, five stars is very, Transcendental. It's very rare. Like, that's, like, it I'd give to... that to, like, I think this is the best book that came out this year or something. Sure. Um, what have you given five stars? Uh, Homegoing by Yagyasi. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a really, really good, amazing book. Um, and this fantasy book by N.K. Jemison. Um, I'm mixing up all the ones in this series. I think it was... It, the most recent one in the series to come out is The Stone Sky, but this was the first one in that series okay. that I read. And mm-hmm. it is a really, like, I read it in, like, a day or something. Oh, wow. Um, which is, yeah, like, I paid money for it on Kindle, and then it was just over with because it was so good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, like, I give I give five stars to books that I just absolutely love and I think are, like, the best in their, in their genre mm-hmm. of that I've read. So. so this one is pretty decent then, you think? Four stars, yeah. Like, four stars is if I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Three stars if, you know, I kind of enjoyed it. And then I don't think I've ever given anything two or one star because I don't finish books. So that, right. Yeah. Well, you, you've only ever really read one other Star Trek book, right? Yeah. Star the, Trek Enterprise, The Good That Men Do. And the autobiography. Of oh, James and Kirk. the autobiography of James T. Kirk, right. And those how does this one rank in comparison with those i like this one better than those really both better than both of them yeah okay i think it had more new information than the autobiography of james kirk for me sure sure yeah that's understandable as for me i mean i would probably rate it similarly um i have read a fair amount of star trek novels uh my favorite if i i really enjoyed the uh the judith garfield reeve stevens um Judith Ann Garfield Reeve Stevens books that were quote-unquote co-written with William Shatner that brought Kirk into the 24th century. I thought those were pretty solid. Uh, I've mentioned the uh, the Tales of the Dominion War anthology book of which David Mack wrote one of the stories for. That's also a, a go-to of mine. I've read the very the, the first entry in the Titan series with Captain Riker and I enjoyed that one. But this one... I think I felt more immediately invested in because it is tied to a show that I'm very engaged in. Like I don't if if this were not connected to the show, I'm not sure if I would like it as much as I did. But the character work is very solid, so yeah. I definitely appreciated it, and I look forward to uh, the next one. So, um, in the end. How do you think this book informs your perspective on the show and its characters? I mean, you mentioned before that the book gave you greater context to Saru specifically. So if you had to talk to someone who is watching the show, do you think it's essential reading for someone who wants to understand more about Burnham, Saru, and Giorgio? Or would you say it's not particularly important but a nice to read? 
I would give it a nice to read. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I think the show does a great job of all of its yes. characterizations. And, right. And they give you the information you need to know if you want to know more. This is an enjoyable diversion. Sure. So. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, so we already talked a little bit about the fact that there's a new uh, Discovery tie-in novel coming out in February called Drastic Mether- Measure Drastic Measures Drastic Measures from author Dayton Ward and how it'll be dealing with Kodos the Executioner and that one will have a young Lieutenant Commander Gabriel Lorca and a Commander Giorgio. What do you think you'd want from that book? Because we've watched The Conscience of the King a few times, the episode with Kodos the Executioner. Obviously, that was kind of a cornerstone of the autobiography of James T. Kirk. It was a pretty important occurrence in his early life. Uh, So do you have any any ideas of what you want to see going into a book that deals with that, especially considering that this is the first time conceivably that we're going to be given a more in-depth look at the early life of the enigmatic Gabriel Lorca. Uh, yeah, I'm here for that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to see young James Kirk mentioned. Okay. All right. I want him to appear in the book. Um, I want to know more about Gabriel Lorca's backstory because I just want to know, <laughs> like, what is going on with that dude? Yeah. Um, Do you think he's yeah. going to be just as sure of himself as he is now i don't know that's the thing is like did something happen to him that like made him how he is or is that just how like how he's always been yeah maybe he's gonna be like super sketchy and like sleeping his way to the top and (laughs) (laughs) well i wonder if it's gonna silo off the stories between Giorgio and Lorca, or if they're actually going to actively interact with each other because it doesn't seem if I were to guess, I don't think they would get along very well. Yeah, I, that doesn't seem like it. Yeah, they're pretty pretty different. But either way, you're looking forward to the next book. Yes, I am. Okay, very good. Well, what are your final thoughts on Star Trek Discovery Desperate Hours? It, it It's an enjoyable book. Like I said, if you want to know more about the characters, you will find out more about the characters. Mm-hmm um it's not long that's true yeah. yep yeah <laughs> uh so yeah it's, an, it's a nice easy read and i would recommend it sure and i echo those sentiments largely i mean um considering especially now like if you are actively grabbing at your veins wanting more discovery stuff like uh i am especially now that i've i've read this book and i don't have anything to look forward to until january Consider picking it up. Nothing to look forward to. Well, okay. There, <laughs> there's, I mean, as as far as there Star are no Trek, holidays. No, in between now and January, there's no birthday of mine yeah. coming up soon or anything like. Well, no, I mean, just in regards to Star Trek, you know, if you want new Star Trek material, and specifically if you want to absorb new material within the realm of Discovery, then uh, then Desperate Hours is most definitely worth your time and your attention. And uh, we'd be very interested to know if you did read it. You know, let us know what you think about it. Maybe you have read it. And, uh, and <clears throat> in that event, we'd love to know what you think about it. But uh, I think that's going to do it for us. Um, so 
Episode 9 of Discovery Debrief is now in the bag. We hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, please like and follow us on our social media channels. And if you'd be so kind, we'd also appreciate it if you wrote a review for the show on iTunes or Facebook. It only takes a minute, and we'll be happy to read your review on the air when it is posted. If you have any questions, you can follow the show on Twitter at DSC Debrief, where you can also find all of our individual Twitter handles. And feel free to send us questions through Twitter, our Facebook like page, or by emailing us at hailingfrequencies at discoverydebrief.com. Please be sure to set your courses for this feed for future episodes. We plan on being back next week with our regular panel to discuss the entirety of the show's first chapter and potentially with a special guest panelist, so keep on, a, on, a, on the lookout for that. So stick with us then, and we'll plan to come to you periodically over the next few months with other Star Trek discussions to try and help scratch the itch that this midseason finale most certainly created. That's going to do it for us, though. So for Rachel, I am Chris. As always, until we speak to you next time, go boldly, my friends. Mm-hmm.